Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and you're about to hear the conversation I had with Congressman Mike Gallagher. Before we get started, however, I thought it best to mention that Congressman Gallagher and I recorded this episode before the storming of the U.S. Capitol building on January 6th. It is for this reason that you will hear no mention of that event. If you're interested in what some of us at the Madison program have had to say about that, then I encourage you to listen to our last episode featuring Robert P. George and Alan Gelza. But for now, here is my conversation with Congressman Mike Gallagher. Enjoy. Our guest today is Congressman Mike Gallagher. Prior to serving in Congress, he spent seven years in the Marines, earning the rank of captain and serving as a counterintelligence officer in the Middle East and North Africa. He also deployed twice to Iraq. He earned his bachelor's degree from Princeton University, a master's degree in security studies from Georgetown University, and a second master's degree in strategic intelligence from the National Intelligence University. And not only is he Congressman Gallagher, he is Dr. Gallagher, as he earned his PhD in international relations from Georgetown. And today he represents Wisconsin's great eighth district, home of the second best team in the NFC, the Green Bay Packers. Congressman wow. Gallagher, welcome to Madison's Notes. I was going to say you're, you're my favorite Scalia, but after that <laughs> comment, I'm not sure. There's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, I believe if we both win out, uh, the Packers will get the one seed in the bye because we beat you, and so we, we get the tiebreaker. Uh, but a, a pivotal final three games of the season. And we are the NFC North champions right now, which I, I very much appreciate. And our special team sucks, so I'm worried about that. Uh, second point is uh, this, uh, this uh, whole question of uh, PhDs going by doctor has become somewhat controversial uh, yeah. in recent days and i have not weighed in on it but i well i will now on on this podcast this is an wow. exclusive for you this is an honor yeah i'll i'll confess something as as fellow catholic you'll you'll appreciate this discussion <laughs> um when i first got to congress in 2017 i was 32 years old i think i was the second youngest member of congress after elise stefanik um and i thought that it would be a good idea to go like, use my PhD title uh, in, insist on being addressed as Dr. Gallagher. There are, I think a few members of Congress even have like PhD on their nameplate uh, or doctor on their nameplate. And I thought that this would be a good way of giving a, a young 32 year old member of Congress, a little bit of, of needed gravitas sure. in this institution. And uh, Mac Thornberry, a great American and uh, then chairman of the armed services committee who's retiring now, quickly uh, informed me that he would not be allowing me to go by the title of doctor and that I did not <laughs> want to do it. And I, I remembered this recently because I'm, I was writing something about um, the, the question of whether General Lloyd Austin should get a waiver to the 1947 National Security Act to be allowed right. to be Biden's Secretary of Defense. And I reviewed the floor debate we had in 2017. This was the first vote I ever cast was to give James Mattis the waiver. 
And Thornberry, when it was time for me to speak, this was my first floor speech. I was very nervous. He referred to me as Dr. Gallagher, just purely <laughs> to mess with me. And I also come from a family of physicians and they have never referred to me once as doctor. And their rule is if you're, if you're on an airplane and someone yells, is there a doctor on the plane? And if you can't answer yes to that question, then we will not address you as doctor. So that uh, seems quite fair. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we have a lot to discuss today. The future of the Republican Party and the conservative movement, the great challenges facing America today at home and abroad. But I'd like to begin here because I know you're a Marine. I see a pull-up bar behind you. So how many pull-ups can you do? Well, this is also a very interesting question because my view is that from the age of really 16 until the age of 30, a man should be able to um, uh, do his age in dead hang pull-ups uninterrupted. Mm. Uh, and I am now 36. So I will confess I have reached a point where I cannot do 36 <laughs> dead hang pull-ups and I tap out at 27. But when I was training as a, a junior at Princeton to, to join the Marine Corps and survive officer candidate school, I mean, I played sports growing up, but I was not a great athlete. And I did, I never lifted weights, right? Like I ran mm -hmm. around for basketball. And so at the first time I got up on a pull-up bar to take my first sort of diagnostic physical fitness test in the Marine Corps, I think I did three pull-ups, which is well below what you need to even <laughs> consider qualifying. So it took me a year of like learning how to work out and lift weights and do pull-ups to even get to a point, I think when I went to officer candidate school, I was doing 14, which is like the bare minimum you need to survive as an officer. Uh, and then it took me another two years to get to a point where I could consist consistently do over 20, which is the maximum uh, to get a, a perfect score on the PFT. I think it's actually higher now. They increased uh, the number to 22. Um, but now it's just become a, a point of pride. And I try and have as many pull-up bars around me as humanly possible and have this dream where I'm going to um, fund a massive infrastructure project where pull-up bars will be installed in airports across America. So. No, I've, I've heard you discuss that idea before. I'm all for it. I think that's, that's great. So, but let's travel back to your junior year of college. Yeah. A lot of your classmates, I'm sure this is Princeton university. One of, if not the nation's premier institution of higher learning, many of your classmates, I'm sure, are getting ready to be bankers and you know, go into finance and consulting. But not you. You're getting ready to enter the Marine Corps. And as soon as you graduate, you do just that. Why? Well, the first thing to say is when I, I came to Princeton in 2002 as a freshman, I had no clue what I wanted to do uh, and, and probably was, was headed towards that sort of track of, oh, you know, I'll go work in finance in New York or, or do consulting or something like that. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to major in. I, I spent a year as a, a Latin American studies sort of pseudo major, which was really an excuse just to get a scholarship from the Spanish department to go work at an all-inclusive resort in Mexico the summer after my uh, freshman year, which was the greatest scam I ever pulled, possibly the greatest scam I ever pulled in Princeton history. Um, and then my sophomore year, uh, after my sophomore year, I was studying abroad in, in England, uh, studying at Cambridge and then in uh, and working for the Rand Corporation there. And then I studied in Spain and I got assigned to this this project uh, studying terrorist 
targeting methods, um, hmm. both sort of ETA in Spain and then sort of Middle Eastern terrorist organizations. And it sounds foolish looking back, but at the time, I mean, it was the first time I started to think about, oh my gosh, we had, we just inv invaded Iraq the year before and, and Afghanistan when I was a freshman. Um, you know, I started to ask these questions of, of, sort of why are we in the Middle East? What's going on there? Why are there these groups that want to destroy our way of life? And I just became fascinated with mm. these questions. I became fascinated with the region. I came back as a junior and I, I was a I major in the Woodrow Wilson School, but I really shifted my focus to Near Eastern studies. I started studying Arabic, which was a, a really stupid oh. decision as a junior because you have class every single morning at like 8 30 <laughs> let's just say i was i was not the disciplined marine that you see before you uh, back then uh but i just it, i was so fascinated with it i loved the language and the more i went down that that rabbit hole of, of near eastern studies the more i started to think okay what what could i do with these skills that i'm acquiring yeah. language skills regional knowledge cultural knowledge and uh i started to think about uh the military um, yeah. And I didn't know anything about the military. I didn't. I don't come from a military family, uh, so I didn't I researched all the the military branches. And the Marine Corps is the greatest propaganda organization in human history. It just sort of like grabbed me, and I, I really wanted that chance to serve my country, and pay back a sure. debt I felt I owed to my family, my community. Um, but also, I wanted the challenge, right? Like I wanted the physical challenge combined with the you know intellectual challenge combined with the leadership uh, challenge, which I think is ultimately a moral challenge. And mm -hmm. the military, I thought, was the best way that I could combine all those things and see if I had what it took. Uh, not only mm -hmm. to do you know more than three pull-ups, but stand in front of you know forty Marines, most of whom were older than me, and, and lead them in a very difficult environment. And uh, that was the best decision I ever made. Certainly an odd decision. Um, uh, some of my peers, I think, were surprised. Uh, that I did it. I mean, you know, 2005, when I went to Office of Canada School, the bottom really fell out of the country in Iraq. You know, we had the Samara Mosque bombing shortly thereafter. You know, it was really, things were really going bad. You know, this was the, then Petraeus, you know, pre-surge was just getting savaged in the media. And so this was not like a popular war nor, nor a popular Princeton decision to join the Marine Corps, but I loved it. Uh, sorry, I went on here, but let me tell one more story. Sure, please do. With, with please Princeton. do. So I go to Officer Canada School, I survived, uh, and so if you if you survive Office Canada School, you earn your commission. But I basically had all of senior year to decide whether or not I wanted to accept my commission and do a three year mm. commitment to the Marine Corps. So I was really weighing weighing this right, and there's no going back once you you know you you become a Marine. Um, and I was at a dinner for the Woodrow Wilson School. The, the guest speaker was. Richard Clark, who was uh, the counterterrorism guru for both Bush and Clinton. Um, he wrote a book called Against All Enemies. He re recently wrote a really good book on, on cyber issues, a good guy. Uh, and I happened to be seated next to him and the dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, Anne Marie Slaughter. And I'm like, well, I'm never going to have this opportunity again. So I'm like, well, hey, hey, Mike Gallagher, I'm a senior. You know, I'm thinking about joining the Marine Corps. What, what advice would you have for me? And both of them advised me not to join the Marine <laughs> and said something to the effect of like a Princeton education would be better spent uh, at, at the CIA at worst. Uh, and I remember sort of being offended by that. And uh, so there's a small part of 
like like spite was a small reason I, I joined the Marine Corps just to prove that it, it could be done and that indeed it was a good use of a, a Princeton education. And it was. Yes, absolutely. Um, and you returned to the frozen tundra, right? From from the desert sands of Iraq to the frozen tundra of Green Bay. And you decide to run for Congress. And for you, serving in Congress is, as you say, a deployment, not a career. So tell us, what's the mission and why did you volunteer for it? Uh, well, it's such a good question. Um, the When I sat there, so I just a little bit of context. Sure. I had, when I got out of the Marine Corps, after seven great years, um, I went to work on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, worked for an amazing Senator, uh, Bob Corker, who was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, and I was his Middle East guy, and it was a fascinating time. And then I got an opportunity to work for Governor Walker, my home state governor, when he ran for president. Uh, I was his national security advisor, and um, just to, even though we didn't win, it was a phenomenal experience, and he was a great guy to work for, just such a hard worker, um, learned a lot from him. Um, but there I was sort of sitting in Wisconsin. I knew I didn't want to go back to D.C. I wanted to be sort of near my family. I wanted also to transition to the private sector and broaden my experience and not just sort of continue to do pure national security work, but connect that to the private sector. Um, and, and so I really was just planning on I, I was working for a great company in Green Bay called Break Your Fuel, and I was getting ready to teach. Uh, adjunct at University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, because I oh. used my GI Bill to finish my PhD. And that was my plan. I was, was going to private sector and academia and maybe look for opportunities to serve in government should, you know, a Republican win at some point. Um, but then my congressman unexpectedly retired. Um, hmm. and people thought he would have he would have won easily for re-election. He's a great guy, Reed Ribble. Um, uh, but he unexpectedly retired. And so suddenly there was this opportunity to run for office. And I, my first reaction when some people reached out to me to see if I was interested was, was hell no, heck no. Sorry. Oh. I, I know the delicate. It's a family show. Yeah. The, the Madison project. <laughs> uh, I bet Madison used profanity worse than hell uh, when he was sitting there <laughs> at the constitutional convention. Uh, he didn't write it in his notes, but. No, uh, that's right. But then, the, and because you know, I, w I wasn't the guy. Even when I worked on a presidential campaign, you know, I was the guy writing white papers or draft foreign affairs articles. I, I wasn't in front of the camera. I had no experience with the fundraising side or anything having to do with the political side of the equation. So I thought, I thought this is just not. You know, I'm building this career as a national security professional and a private sector leader, and it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. But then the more I thought about it, I'm like, you know, here I am, writing articles criticizing the direction of U.S. foreign policy criticizing the Obama administration's leadership. You know, I worked for a campaign because I wanted to be part of fixing that. Yeah. Um, I need to put my money where my mouth is. And this is an opportunity to continue to serve my country in a different way, uh, right? Like I can continue to work on national security issues I feel passionate about and connect them to domestic issues as a legislator. Um, and I also felt strongly that as a younger person, I think I was 31 at the time when I first announced and then turned 32 uh, when I got elected, uh, that we did need a new generation of leaders, particularly those who'd served in uniform, who could bring that experience to the public um, problems, to public service and, and the biggest uh, public policy issues uh, of the day. So yeah, I kind of, it, it was right place, right time, was not the favorite to win the primary, uh, had a lot of support from the grassroots and, and just kind of built the thing, built the plane as, as, as it was taken off uh, the runway. And here I am uh, four years later. Four years later. 
In 2018, two years ago, Congressman Mike Gallagher in the pages of The Atlantic, quote, if you are among the 11% of Americans who believe that everything in Congress is going swimmingly, then save some time and stop reading now. But first, please share whatever experimental drugs you are on. But if you are among the 87% of people who are concerned about what is going on in Congress, then I have an important message for you. It's much worse than you think. End quote. What's wrong with Congress and why is it even worse than we think? Well, first of all, that article got me in a lot of trouble. Uh, <laughs> got, got me kicked off the board of the, the Naval Academy by House leadership. Uh, I was actually giving us prior to the publication of that article, I was giving a speech on the House floor before we broke for August recess. And I, we had we knew that the government was going to shut down. We didn't have a budget deal and we were going to leave for a month and come back, you know, with this issue unresolved. So I gave a speech on the House floor just saying we shouldn't go on recess. You know, recess is for fourth graders, not for members of Congress, blah, 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 blah. And usually the House floor is empty. And that's one of the problems we'll talk about. Uh, but there was a member of House leadership on the floor who shall go unnamed, who is listening to me give that speech and just shaking his head and then gave a sarcastic golf clap afterwards. And then the next day, Mark Meadows, who was then head of the Freedom Caucus, and they had, I think they had just tanked the original health care reform bill, uh, came up to me, and he was getting a lot of criticism for doing that. He came up to me and he said, hey, I just wanted to thank you because yesterday uh, I was the least popular member of Congress. Today, you are the least popular <laughs> member of Congress. So. But I, really, the, the, the article was, was a result of, of a little bit of frustration as a freshman legislator and just observation about things that didn't make much sense to me. And it led me down this path to try and study the history of Congress and how it's evolved or devolved as the case may be. And a few things became clear. Um, you know, as, as I think conservatives have long said, you know, one of the, the fundamental problems with the government right now is that and deficiencies from a constitutional perspective or from a Madisonian perspective is that uh, the, the, the first branch of government, Article One, the legislative branch of government has surrendered a lot of its authority under the constitution into the second branch of government, the executive branch of government, which in turn allows the third branch of government to adjudicate a lot of issues that they, should, right. they really shouldn't be adjudicating. Uh, and that's true. And I think that is, that is probably the biggest problem uh, we face. And I think, I think it would surprise mm. Madison, right? Um, you know, and I think it would surprise all the authors of the Federalist Papers who indeed felt that the opposite might happen, right? That Congress would suck everything into its impetuous vortex, I believe yeah. is the phrase they used, or that members of Congress being ambitious, power-hungry people would never surrender power to the other branch. Right. Um, and Yuval Levin has written beautifully about this trend. But I think what is less understood is how dynamics within the institution have allowed that to happen. So in addition to that massive power shift from Article One to Article Two, there's been a power shift from within Congress from the committees to House leadership. And this started in the 70s when all the Watergate babies got elected trying to clean up Washington and reform and ironically claw back some of their authority from an out of control executive branch. And they did a variety of things that I think were, were counterproductive. I think the War Powers Resolution uh, actually increased the power of the executive. The, um, the Budget Control and Empowerment Act created a highly dysfunctional budget process that increased the power of the executive. Hmm. Uh, the National Emergencies Act, I think was in 76, uh, you know, we recently had that controversy, also got me in trouble. 
um, <laughs> increase the power of the executive. Uh, and then th that was when you saw the creation of what is now referred to as, as the steering committee. And then the Republicans took back Congress in the 90s for the first time in a long time. They did the same thing. You know, they, they were elected to drain the swamp and they did a series of things that actually unintentionally increased the size of the swamp and increased the relative power of the executive branch. And so I sort of thought through, okay, this is a, a huge problem. Um, it manifests itself in this, this, this um, spectacle, which you can see if you just turn on C-SPAN, where members of Congress are just giving speeches to an empty house chamber. Right. We're never having an actual debate, you know, committee hearings, unless they're about impeachment or something really juicy where you can get, you know, a clip on Fox News or MSNBC are sparsely attended or members parachute in and they read, you know, whatever their staff has, has prepared for them. And then they parachute out and they continue fundraising. And I thought, well, this is a huge problem. And this is, uh, and the, the final thing I'd say is, I, it also made me realize that I was wrong about my initial hypothesis about why Congress was dysfunctional and had lost the trust of the American people. I just thought prior to being elected that it was purely a people problem, yeah. that the people who got elected were too power hungry or, or not that smart or, you know, pretty slimy. That's not the case. I mean, there's certainly people like that, but overwhelmingly, I mean, the people that are here are very talented, they're very patriotic. They're very hardworking and they want to do the right things, but they find themselves thrust into a very dysfunctional institution where it's hard to ha even have an honest debate, uh, let alone effectuate um, change or, or um, you know, solve big problems. Um, so uh, my, my solution to this is to, to sort of rebalance power within the institution, send it back down to the committees uh, by changing the way committee chairs are elected. Um, allow more time for debate and discussion by changing the uh, congressional calendar. Um, and then uh, finally, just sort of simplifying and streamlining the entire committee structure, uh, perhaps most controversially by collapsing the appropriations committees into the authorization committee. So we don't have this arbitrary distinction between um, people that uh, appropriate money and people get to authorize how that money is spent. So some arcane issues, but I, are, I think are absolutely necessary if we are going to ever get around to restoring Congress's rightful role in our constitutional order. Beyond the dysfunction, right? I think many people know that Congress uh, doesn't get done everything we'd like Congress to get done. Maybe they're jarred by just how bad you say it is. But beyond this dysfunction, what surprised you most in your time in Congress or might surprise our listeners? Well, I'll give you good, good and bad. Um, sure. The good, the good is what I referenced before. It's that there, there actually are a lot of extremely talented, smart um, uh, people uh, in this institution. And honestly, in the last two elections, we've gotten waves on both sides of, of new freshman legislators, a lot of whom have military experience and private sector experience that I think are going to be um, a, jolt, a much needed jolt of energy and um, uh, intellectual honesty into the institution. Um, on the bad side, I would say the, the demands of, of fundraising for re-election are mm. even more onerous than I imagined when I first ran. And it, such that, like, you know, when you first get elected, the advice you get from everyone is spend all your time, you know, focused on, on your re-election. Mm. And, and it crowds out the time that you need to do oversight, right? I mean, I'm on the Armed Services Committee. It, it's probably the exception that proves the rule in terms of how committees don't work. Um, cause it does work pretty well still, um, thanks to great leadership from Thornberry and others. Uh, but you know, the Pentagon is a massive, massive bureaucracy. And I, you yeah. know, I come to these issues with a certain amount of experience, probably a little bit more experience than 
your average member, you know, my, my graduate work is mostly on national security and defense issues, but it's tough. I mean, you got to spend a lot of time in order to understand the bureaucracy and conduct effective oversight and to, to legislate uh, responsibly. And if you're spending all that time dialing for dollars, it's, it's very hard uh, to be an effective uh, legislator. Uh, you know, I know campaign finance issues are incredibly thorny from a constitutional perspective, and I yeah. don't um, pretend to be an expert on them. But the simple fact is that, you know, the, the time spent raising money is a huge problem uh, for, for members of Congress. Yeah. I'd like to turn now to the Republican Party, specifically in the conservative movement, and what the future holds for both of these. And I'd like to begin by paraphrasing the great political scientist, Harry Jaffa, who said that the fate of the world depends on the United States. The fate of the United States depends on the conservative movement. And the fate of the conservative movement depends on the health and success of the Republican Party, end quote. And now a couple headlines from the past few months. The decline of the GOP. The crisis isn't Trump, it's the Republican Party. The Republican Party is dead. How do you respond to that? Interesting. Uh, well, I haven't read the article, so I'd be curious why he thinks that is. Um, I think it's fair to say we're going through a period of um, profound disruption right now. Uh, I think the party, maybe this cuts a little bit against my analysis of how Congress operates, because I, I do stand by the basic uh, conclusion that power is tightly concentrated among four people that really dictate what comes to the floor. But simultaneously, the party itself is, I think, in a weaker position than it was uh, a few decades ago. And, um, and but I, I could see a world in which those two things actually reinforce each other. Right. Like in, in, a, in a world in which members of Congress don't feel like the path to power goes through the committee process. Right. Where, you know, you get rewarded with. Um, legislation and attention if you do good committee work and focus on legislating, then those members are going to gravitate towards alternative things, yeah. such as becoming, you know, B-list celebrities on cable news and becoming bomb throwers, right? Yeah. And that's why I think in turn the parties are weak because the attention is going towards all the bomb throwers and the insurgents and the people that want to burn the party and a variety of other institutions down. So I don't know if that, that aligns with Jaffa's analysis, but I do, I do concede the point that I think the party is in a weak position. Um, I think Trump has also exposed that the perhaps uh, what is referred to as like zombie Reaganism is, is not uh, sufficient for, for the present moment. Um, I would like, however, to see the Republican Party to return to some basic conservative principles. Um, Perhaps foremost among them is, is fiscal conservatism. Um, you know, I, I get that we're now in some sort of populist moment, but I, I, yeah. I think you know, uh, a country a country that doesn't maintain its its, its fiscal house uh, in order is a country that's destined uh, to decline. And if the conservative party, the Republican Party, doesn't stand for um, fiscal conservatism, then then what do uh, we stand for? And I, I have to believe that we can be fiscally conservative while also being sensitive to the needs of working class uh, Americans. Um, and I think, you know, we're never gonna be able to outbid, outbid the progressives when it comes to the redistribution of other people's money. So that's point one that I'd like to yeah. see. Uh, point two is, uh, you know, in the past four years under uh, President Trump, 
Um, uh, even some progressives have, have suddenly rediscovered the virtues of uh, states' rights and, you know, uh, a federal uh, system uh, in the old yeah. school sense uh, of government uh, in which California gets to do its thing and what works in, in Manhattan and Manhattan Beach is different than what works in Milwaukee and Madison, let alone Marinette. Uh, Wisconsin. Uh, and that's a beautiful thing. And yeah. I think uh, conservatives really need to stick to that principle. I think we've strayed from it uh, in important ways. And I, and I think uh, yeah, in the last few years, at times, we've been willing to compromise that basic principle and further concentrate power in the federal government just for the sake of some short-term victories that are damaging to our, our long-term um, uh, conservative uh, principles, if that makes sense. The third thing that I would say, and where I do think sort of like the basics of, of the, the Reagan, Reaganism it, it still applies is, uh, is on national security. Mm. Um, and, and maybe I'm now in the minority on this, but I, I just think the fundamentals of um, a robust military deterrent combined with, uh, with, with strong allies um, and a clear moral leadership of the free world is the best recipe for um, security, safety, and prosperity going forward. And the fact is now for the first time since uh, Reagan defeated the Soviet Union, uh, we find ourselves uh, in a new Cold War with a communist adversary in the form of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and to me, that is the struggle of our generation. And uh, it is a struggle that um, the Republican Party needs to confront head on. Uh, and I think it also presents an opportunity to lay a bipartisan foundation uh, for US foreign policy. So if I were advising uh, the Republican Party uh, on, on where where to go. Those were, those would be three things that I would add add to the debate, and, and I think that the, those are the right things to focus on from a policy perspective, and ultimately they'll be the the, the best things uh, politically as well. You called the rise of the Chinese Communist Party a generational struggle. Is that the greatest challenge America faces today? The rise of the CCP. I think so. Uh, I think is an, an existential challenge. Um, but what I'm wrestling with intellectually right now is, is whether there is a, an internal domestic challenge that we have to resolve if we're going to have a chance of outcompeting yeah. the CCP. Um, and in other words, like, it's, it's, to me, it seems impossible that we could prevail in this competition if we are constantly at war with ourselves sure. um, if, or if we're just not doing the basic task of educating the next generation of citizens. And in the, in the last few months, I've become obsessed with K through 12 educational issues in my state, both because we've had this very unproductive conversation about racial injustice in America. Yeah. Um, and because, you know, parents all over my district are, are discovering that their kids aren't learning anything uh, sitting in front of a screen all day. And perhaps because I just became a parent myself uh, for the first time. Now I have a long way to go before I match the Scalia's in terms of, <laughs> but I'm doing my best. And um, so I, I guess I, I come to believe that education is, is a national security issue or hmm. is upstream of all our other problems with the exception of family formation, right? And I don't know how to legislate a fix to the problem of failing families, but I do fundamentally believe that a access to a world-class education is the best chance that we could give a kid who's born in the worst family 
uh, circumstance. It is the great equalizer in our society, and it's the way we produce citizens uh, yeah. who can be responsible participants in, in our democracy. So, you know, I, I sort of come to see it both ways, right? I think I think in order to have a success in in uh, maintaining uh, American leadership uh, uh, in a very difficult geopolitical environment, we're going to have to find a way to fix uh, a variety of domestic political issues. But foremost among them is the increasing mediocrity of our public uh, education system. And I think mm. uh, the increasing irrelevance or uselessness of our, our higher uh, education uh, system as well. So I don't know if any of that makes sense. No, um, I think that makes perfect sense. I think that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Um, who do you look up to, right? Who, who are your heroes, the men you try to emulate every day when you walk into the Capitol building? Gosh, that is such. So I, I this is going to sound like I'm a homer, but uh, I do love uh, Wisconsin history, and I spent a lot of time studying Wisconsin history. So if you look, maybe this will screw up your podcast here. Um, so this is not this is not like a conservative hero right here, but Wisconsin's most uh, famous politician is is fighting Bob LaFollette, La and his statue is in uh, the Capitol. Uh, uh, as well. And the poster I just showed you is a, a political cartoon um, from World War One, where Bob LaFollette is uh, being pinned uh, war medals uh, by the German Kaiser. Uh, and LaFollette just got savaged by everybody because he stood in opposition to, to the war um, and stood quite firmly on sound constitutional grounds against oh. uh, Woodrow Wilson's uh, uh, unconstitutional excesses and just got hammered for it. He almost got shot on the Senate floor. True story. <laughs> uh, there was a conspiracy to shoot him. Uh, and then there's another map that I have framed. Uh, that's a sedition map uh, from Wisconsin at the time. You know, and most of the opposition to the war came from Wisconsin politicians because we had such a, a heavy German American yeah, uh, right. population. And, and and so while I don't agree with all of LaFollette's progressive Republican politics. I do think he was a very intellectually courageous and, and honest individual. And there's that sort of streak, what I would call kind of like an independent streak that runs consistently through Wisconsin politics that I, I greatly admire. Um, uh, there is uh, the, the, the only uh, senator who, who opposed the Kellogg-Brand Pact and, and, and the, the hero who, who got rid of prohibition was a, a Wisconsin senator. Um, you know, Bill Proxemeyer was famous for his Golden Fleece Awards. And so, and then, you know, uh, Mel Laird, who, you know, preserved sort of the sinews of strength in the Defense Department uh, during, you know, a time of very intense downward pressure on defense spending during the Vietnam War as Nixon Secretary of Defense. I've just become really interested in, in, in Wisconsin history. And maybe this sounds like arrogant, but it also makes me feel like I'm, I'm part of it. And it gives me a, like, motivation to, yeah. to responsibly carry out uh, that tradition. And I think as, as a young kid in Wisconsin, I was always fascinated by, you know, foreign policy and things outside the world of Wisconsin. And this idea that, you know, a Wisconsinite, whether it's, you know, George Kennan, uh, the author of our containment strategy, yeah. uh, or, or Douglas MacArthur, a complicated figure, you know, could play a role on the world stage was, was an intoxicating idea. Uh, that being said, the person I, I have spent the most time with um, not uh, in, in real life, because he's been dead for a long time, uh, is Eisenhower. Uh, I wrote mm. my dissertation largely on Eisenhower. I've been fascinated by Eisenhower. I look up to him greatly, um, you know, a complicated figure. Uh, but uh, I, I've always just admired his, um, 
his decision-making style and structure. Uh, he had a very robust NSC process that I don't think we've seen since with Bush uh -huh. 41 probably came close. Uh, and he was very good um, owing in large part to his time in the military at, at, at producing debate among his subordinates and thereby improving his decisions. He had this great mm -hmm. phrase he would constantly say where he would tell people that there could be no non-concurrence through silence. In other words, you can't sit there at the table, say nothing, and then bash a decision that was made mm. two months later. You have to put your yeah. chips on the table. You have to participate in the discussion. I love that. The other thing you'd always tell the subordinates is, now, boys, let's not make our mistakes uh, in a hurry. And I've always liked, I like that phrase uh, <laughs> a lot. That's good. Um, one last question for you, and then we'll get you out of here. What advice do you have for listeners, young men and women, who are considering a career in the military or a career in government or just raising patriotic children? What advice do you have for these men and women who want to serve our country in some way? Uh, great question. Okay, so let me connect this to, I assume the title of your podcast is a reference to Madison's notes on the Constitution. <laughs> exactly. So right. you, got ch you have to check me on this. I'm sure. pretty sure that Madison uh, showed up early to the Constitutional Convention. He gets, I think, I don't know if it's in his notes or it, it's a secondhand source, but I remember reading this beautiful moment where he's sitting there in the room and he's deciding what desk he's going to sit at and how best to position himself physically in order to position himself intellectually to win the debate mm. on the Constitution. And so there's enormous value to showing up early. And this yeah. is a concept that is near and dear to my heart in Green Bay, Wisconsin, because we have something called Lombardi time. And it's, it's a concept Lombardi stole from Red Blake at West Point when he worked there. And you basically, if you're on time, you're 15 minutes late. And it's why the clock at Lambeau Field is always uh, 15 minutes fast. So oh, no kidding. I, talk, I always <laughs> talk to my subordinates about uh, Lombardi time and how important it is uh, to show up early. And I know that sounds silly, but I think particularly in your 20s, like if you want to serve the country, if you want to, you want a career and policy, like you have a unique opportunity because you're not tied down by much. You don't need to buy a house. You shouldn't own anything that you can't put in the back of your car in less than 30 minutes. Like you can volunteer for every adventure, every opportunity to get out there, get your hands dirty, get your street cred, uh, you can show up early for everything and you should yeah. never, you should, you, you really need to take advantage of that opportunity. And so that's one thing. Uh, I think the second thing um, that has really stuck with me from my time in the Marine Corps uh, is this concept, um, which has now become a more popular concept, I think because of a few books that Simon Sinek has, has written. Um, we would always say officers eat last. Hmm. And that basic idea is that, you know, you have a duty as a leader to take uh, a care of your subordinates before you take care of yourself. You need to, yeah. you need to be concerned with their welfare before your own. And you can't make what we refer to in the Marine Corps uh, comfort-based decisions. It's the, your priorities need to be the mission first and your Marines second. And the more you take care of your Marines, the better chance you have of accomplishing the mission. And I, I think that concept is powerful. And I think it's applicable outside of military leadership. It's certainly something that I try to, to live out each day in Congress, albeit imperfectly. And, and I do feel like I have a duty to, 
to help my constituents. Um, this is not a platform for me to get famous or, or wealthy. Yeah. It's a platform for me to serve people. And I've just found incidentally in my own life, uh, and this is something I probably could have learned in 12 years of Catholic school if I was paying better attention. <laughs> the, more, the more I build my life around the idea of serving other people, the happier I tend to be. Uh, and the, the more I build my life around satisfying my own sort of ego and ambitions or, or like, you know, things like wealth and, and power, the less happy I tend to be. Yeah. And that's, I think that's a robust finding across many people's lives. Um, the final thing I'd say is, you know, it, what I, what I struggled with, uh, in the Marine Corps is, um, particularly when you get to the fleet for the first time is you should have this vision in your head of like military leadership and bearing. And, you know, you, it, it can come off as very inauthentic if you're trying to be like the, the hardcore Arlie Ermy drill sergeant, when that's not your natural leadership style, I, I yeah. think people want authenticity more than anything else. And so mm -hmm. for me, I, I, I like to, to joke around. I think it's important to have a sense of humor and so I always tell people to, to take the mission, but not yourself uh, too seriously. And, uh, mm. you know, having a, a sense of humor about things is, is a great uh, survival strategy uh, uh, going forward. Oh, and let me just add one final thing. Um, Absolutely. This ties back into Lombardi time and showing up early. Get up early and spend the first hour of your day, you know, after you've done your, your morning prayer, writing. I have an mm. app on my computer called freedom that turns off internet and every single morning for the past six years, almost without fail, with the exception of when I was on my honeymoon, I have spent the first hour of my day thinking and writing, even when I'm not working on a writing project, that's helpful. And just having that time is the best way to stay on offense before the day puts you on defense. So that's all of the wisdom I've learned in 36 years encapsulated <laughs> into uh, into four cheesy aphorisms, I guess. Well, we are we are grateful for those four aphorisms. We're grateful for you taking the time today. Our guest today has been Congressman Mike Gallagher. I'm quite certain we've not heard the last of him in our national politics, and I hope we've not heard the last of him on this podcast. Congressman Gallagher, thank you. Thank you. Go Pat Go. Uh, last time I checked, the Saints only have one Super Bowl, and that was uh, a fluke. So let's try not to give them another one this year. A horrible way to end this. All right. All thank right. you. Yeah, thank you, Congressman. As you probably noticed, we recorded that conversation back while Congressman Gallagher's Green Bay Packers and my New Orleans Saints were duking it out for possession of the NFC. Unfortunately, the Packers bested the Saints in the regular season and have now outlasted the Saints in the postseason. Uh, so my congratulations to Congressman Gallagher and his constituents. We'll get you next year. Uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time here, so I'll just ask that you please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And if you've been enjoying these conversations, do leave us a five-star review. It's very helpful in helping others come to this podcast. Thank you for your support. Thank you for joining us. And I hope to have you back with us next time here on Madison's Notes. <laughs>